Transitioning from student into the quote-unquote real world can be challenging, especially in industries that are rapidly changing and sometimes overlooked in modern society. Today's guest, Doug Dimster, is the Dean of the College of Fine Arts at the University of Texas, Austin. During his tenure, he has worked to shift the conversation in the classroom. Frequently called freelancers, self-employed artists are sometimes some of the hardest working entrepreneurs, but for years were not learning the entrepreneurial tools and skills they needed while attending university. Dean Dimster saw a need, from the creation of maker spaces on campus to better professional transitional experiences, he is making changes on campus that will hopefully ripple out into other industries for decades to come. Here's my conversation with Dean Dimster. Well, welcome to Masters and Founders. We're here with Dean Dimster at UT. And I, am, I have the privilege of, of just chatting a little bit about uh, what we do over at Masters and Founders and the stories that we tell and what we're trying to accomplish. So, Dean, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I have questions. I was looking at your background and just there's so much that you've accomplished. And I, I really want to start at the beginning. Like, When did you know that you wanted to go down this this path, which is the academic and teaching others and, and uh, the, all the things that you've done? Well, the truth of the matter is that the path I'm on is not the path I expected to go down. <laughs> uh, I, I am trained as a philosopher. Um, all my academic degrees are in philosophy. And I, I say now later in my life that I'm a congenital philosopher. I, I couldn't help myself. So... Uh, when I went to college, I discovered philosophy for the first time and realized that was my real talent. Uh, all I wanted to do the rest of my life was to be a philosophy professor, uh, teaching young people uh, the life of the mind. But, but here I am now, dean of one of the largest public university professional arts colleges in the country. Uh, and that's been kind of a winding path. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about that transition from philosophy to to, to now. Yeah, and what that looks so like. So I've always had a, a passion for the arts, even from a very young age, um, and that's the sort of philosophy I did when I was younger. And as I got my advanced degrees, it was uh, the philosophy of art and aesthetics, uh, pretty wonky stuff. Um, but uh, my first job out of graduate school was at, at a really elite music conservatory, the Eastman School of Music, uh, one of the best classical music conservatories in the world. And I was teaching humanities and philosophy uh, to uh, young professional musicians. And, uh, and that was fine. That was, in a way, my dream come true. Uh, that was at the Eastman School of Music and the University of Rochester in upstate New York. Uh, and then the culture wars hit, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the NEA was under assault. There was all kinds of debate about uh, censoring music. Uh, and there was a frontal assault on uh, the arts and artists. Uh, and I started talking to my students about the politics and the economics uh, the sociology of the arts, and I realized that these young, soon-to-be professional artists, uh, uh, freelancers working out in the world, had no idea how the world worked to support the arts. Uh, 
just if you take music, for instance, uh, uh, one of the oldest uh, trade unions in the world is, uh, are the musicians' guilds. Go back even to the Middle Ages. Uh, our students knew almost nothing about the American Federation of Musicians, which had so much to do uh, in protecting the rights of musicians out in the working world. So that's when my thinking shifted towards uh, not only educating our students differently uh, as future professional artists, but also how our curricula uh, in art schools had become out of sync with uh, what those students needed uh, to be uh, future professionals. And, and in the case of artists, uh, understand uh, that many, many, many graduates from art schools are going to be freelancers. Freelancer is just an old-fashioned term for a self-employed entrepreneur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, entrepreneurship is uh, a very fashionable uh, uh, terminology these days, but uh, most artists, um, self-employed freelance artists, are entrepreneurs. Yes. They're people with unique talents, mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> they're trying to find, or in most cases, create a market for something that most people didn't know they needed, namely right. that unique talent that that artist is, is offering. So entrepreneurship uh, among artists is uh, perhaps one of the oldest professional skills, and our students were not being well prepared as the future entrepreneurs they would have to be to pursue their art and passion. That's really so, interesting. So I shifted all my attention towards, all right, how do you redesign a curriculum in a professional art school for the 21st century uh, that really prepares our students well. And, and here I am, some 20 years later, uh, dean of a really very distinguished uh, fine arts college at the University of Texas. Wow. You uh, still abbreviated a whole lot of that. <laughs> here yeah, I am yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. but, but at least we get to the passion and the turning point, because it was it was this need that you, you found, which was, hey, the, and I'm just going to, Put it in my own words, but it was, it was, the art is fantastic, and these are the challenges. But one of the biggest challenges: how do you fend for yourself once you're out of school and, and doing this? And that wasn't being taught in the curriculum. So, what have you done as dean? And, and you might want to sum up some of the main things that you, you find or to make those changes to help students. Sure. Uh, so there are many, many things we're doing here at the University of Texas to really make the students transition out in, into the working world as seamless as we can so they can realize their passion. So I'll, I'll just uh, step back and, and provide a little more context. Um, I, I'm chairman of the board of a national foundation called the Strategic National Arts Alumni Project. That, that's a mouthful. It's a, it's a clever acronym. It's, it's SNAP. Uh, the Strategic National Arts Alumni Project is really a consortium of professional art schools that are tracking professional outcomes for their graduates to see where they end up and how they got there and ultimately how we can do better in preparing them to move out into that world. So we learned a number of important things about graduates of professional art schools. For our college, we know something on the order of 60% of our graduates are actually working out in fields that they think are connected importantly to their major in college. So we consider that to be a very high rate of relevance for the training uh, um, for what students are doing. 
Uh, but we also know that they overwhelmingly report that they weren't uh, adequately well prepared for that professional transition. They, they learned uh, the, the literature of their art form, uh, and I don't mean by that the written literature, but if it's um, visual arts or sculpture or acting or theater or music, they, they were made literate in the form and they uh, achieved the skill level, that, at least at the level of an advanced apprentice or master of, of their art form, but they didn't really know, as I realized back in 1989 during the culture wars, that they had much idea of how uh, an artist uh, actually thrives out in the world. And so the Strategic National Arts Alumni Project allows me as dean and my faculty and other colleges around the country to adapt the curriculum to make it more relevant to what students need out in the world. So what are we doing in the College of Fine Arts? Uh, all kinds of things. Um, studies have shown that um, more important than the college you go to, uh, more important than the major you pursue in college, uh, uh, to your professional success, maybe one of the most important things a student can have or do in order to move out into the working world and pursue their passion as a profession is to have uh, an internship or some kind of early professional experience that allows them to transition. So we're building those kinds of, call them internships if you like, but it's a wide variety of what I call uh, professional transitional experiences that help students move uh, from their formal education out into the working world without the huge drop off the cliff that many see when they graduate. So we have uh, acting students who do a semester uh, in Los Angeles at the end of their um, term. We have students doing internships all over Austin. Uh, one of the big moves we've made is to bring entrepreneurship right into the curriculum uh, of uh, an arts college, which is kind of an unusual idea. Mm -hmm. What's unusual is not uh, that we're teaching entrepreneurship because, as I said before, uh, every freelance artist is in some sense uh, an entrepreneur, but I, I call that small e entrepreneurship. Small e because you're figuring out how to find or create a market uh, for your unique talent uh, and, and employ yourself by doing it, right? And, and that's a, a, a noble, uh, honorable profession and, and a great thing for any artist to accomplish. They've employed themselves and support their lifestyle and their family and whatever else they're trying to send their kids to college and achieve that kind of stability um, that you talked about. But the more I started to look at what was going on out in the world of industry, I realized many, many uh, CEO types, people in the C-suite, had backgrounds in the arts. And I started to think, well, how, how does that happen? H how exactly do those people get into uh, those roles? Well, p partly, I suppose, the answer many might give is, well, <laughs> it's really challenging to make a living as an artist. So uh, many creatives move off into other professions. But I also think that there's something important about what um, attracts, what kind of person the arts attract, creative, innovative, uh, independent thinkers, rule breakers or not rule followers, and that these are people who actually uh, have a skill set that uh, advances them out in the world. So I started to think about, well, uh, maybe we should be looking at biggie entrepreneurship, which is uh, entrepreneurs, I, this is just, 
this is a philosopher who's a fine arts dean who's just making up terms. I have right. no idea what you or other uh, experts on entrepreneurship would say about this. But um, let's look at um, preparing our students and our future graduates to be not just self-employed, but uh, people that create companies, that um, create capital, that employ others, that build wealth, um, and maybe change the world in big ways because they're thinking at a scale that goes beyond self-employment. Now, <coughs> self-employment uh, makes, makes it sound modest, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, Beyonce is self-employed mm -hmm. at some level, yep. and that's a huge industry. Yep. Uh, and has gigantic reach and influence in the world. But that's not the only way a creative or an artist can have a biggie entrepreneurship effect on the world. And we're trying to teach our students about what it means to be a biggie entrepreneur. We've um, brought Jan Ryan onto our faculty and staff in the College of Fine Arts. Jan is a serial tech entrepreneur in Silicon Valley in Austin. She founded uh, uh, an organization called, um, what is it, uh, Women at Austin. It's a network of women entrepreneurs. She's a, a partner in the Capital Factory. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's embedded now in the College of Fine Arts talking to students about their ideas uh, that could become biggie entrepreneurship ideas. Yeah. And that's creating a kind of seedbed of big thinkers uh, in our college that we really think will have an outsized influence on not only the future of our graduates out in the world, that they'll prosper, uh, I think, in this way. I do love that. I want to comment um, in this journey I've been on with the magazine for the last couple of years, done over 100 interviews with founders. Mm -hmm. And I'm also, as I do the interviews, I'm looking for that one gene. Because there's, there's, there's something that, that makes a founder of a company tech differently. and and for the most part, there's a lot of creativity in founders. So I 100% agree with, and I see the connection between the fine arts and the creativity that it takes to be an artist and to look at the world and create something, whether it be a you know piece of technology or whether it be uh, a restaurant or wh whatever uh, a founder does, whether it be a new liquor or whatever they're doing. They're creating something that did not exist before. And so I read a, uh, uh, a quote not too long ago where it says, look at everything around you. It was first thought by a founder. And it, it, it brings us back to the creativity mm -hmm. of the arts. And, and I, I would say to um, its persuasiveness, I, a distinction I always make, and, mm -hmm. and I don't mean to be argumentative, no, sure. that is in my nature. Um, if, if, if I open a, a new McDonald's uh, franchise at a busy intersection where there isn't one, I suppose you could call that entrepreneurial, but uh, that, that's just uh, opening a company or, or that, that has a known demand and market. Correct. There are risks involved, but yeah. not what I would call entrepreneurial risks. Right. Any artist is actually trying to create demand yeah where it's not known to exist. And of course, ma many fail at that. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you look at uh, real entrepreneurs, you say, well, that's somebody who has not only the creativity, uh, also the passion, and probably a, a relentless work ethic, 
to uh, create demand where it's not currently discernible. A and that's what um, all artists are, in effect, prepared to do. Mm -hmm. but, but it's a question of scale. Uh, uh, so what we as a college are saying is, yes, of course, do that at the scale of the individual freelance artist. That's wonderful life. But don't forget that you, too, could be a captain of industry. Yes. Uh, that's a difference um, that's often overlooked by art schools because that's conceded to the business school right. or the engineering school right. or computer science. Yeah. We're trying to get our students to think at scale. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. No, I, no argument here. I totally 100% agree with that. Yeah. And, and it's, it amazes me, the journey that, that where I go and talk to the different founders and just look at their career their creation, and you're right, I, I make that distinction myself, it's, it's um, you know, when we bring people into our magazine, in our literature, it's, it is trying to highlight that initial idea, what was that idea that was different, it wasn't a franchise, it was, what makes you different, what makes you tick, and what was that belief system inside that made this grow, and whether it's, it's a multi-billion dollar co company, or it's a few hundred million, I'm still, it's still a life that you've created out of, out of an idea. Which right. is which is wonderful, right? Right. So let's talk more about you, your future, what 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 we how we can help that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, I mean, my my passion is for educating young people, uh, uh, and of course, to the life of the mind, to, to the best um, that we have to share in our culture. I, that that hasn't gone away, but um, like. Many academic leaders, uh, I worry about them the way I worry about my own children, which is uh, how will they make <coughs> a living in the world uh, so that they can really enjoy the best uh, that life has to offer. And that means having a livelihood and doing something not just honorable uh, and decent, but to be gainfully employed and perhaps to make the world a better place. So. I'm constantly thinking, and this brings out something of the entrepreneur in me, about how you move a, a very large college and university uh, into the 21st century uh, where the situation, the conditions are very different from what they were when this college was first created over 80 years ago. Uh, universities, mo mo most uh, people in the wider world would be totally shocked to hear me say that universities are very conservative places. And of course I'm making a dumb joke because they're of course not politically conservative. Universities are in fact as a community politically quite liberal. But uh, maybe a better term for describing universities is that they're conservationist. That they tend to hold on traditions uh, to traditions and the way we do things uh, uh, so that they don't change too quickly. Now, is that an inherently bad thing? No, absolutely not, because universities, whatever else they do, should be codifying wisdom and knowledge and uh, expertise and uh, methods of knowing and interpreting the world and uh, passing along what's most durable and important in our culture and our science, right? So you don't want universities changing every year with the latest fashion. That would be a terrible uh, basis for education. On the other hand, we're also educating students for a future, uh, which is unlike the past that many of us as faculty members 
uh, grew up in, uh, and in some very important ways. And one place where our world changes very rapidly, it, it's not in uh, cosmology or, or the structure of the universe or the atomic structure of, of the universe, that changes quite slowly. So trying to understand how that works is a durable, ongoing enterprise. Uh, but culture that surrounds us and in which we're embedded, we're, we're in, in effect, fish swimming in a, a, a sea of culture. That changes quite rapidly. Uh, and of course, it's now a truism that we're in an increasingly globalized culture where this amazing mashup and blending of cultures from around the world, and all that's being driven by technology in radical uh, new ways. This is the other little sermonette I give, is that the, the interaction between technology and culture is as ancient as both technology and culture. It's always been there. It's always happened. Uh, it's just that uh, every new generation brings new technologies, and that breeds new culture. New cultural activities actually drive the technology in interesting new directions. And it's just a constant double helix of influence uh, as we move forward. Some would say the pace of change is growing more rapid than it ever has before. But the, our inherent conservationism in the university has to not be so slow to advance that uh, it doesn't uh, leave itself open to the uh, major changes in our culture and our marketplace, our commerce, uh, for the next generation. Because that's the sea that our students will be swimming in. They have to be prepared for it. Just, just to give one example, while jazz in the United States, which is maybe one of our greatest uh, national contributions to uh, global culture and, and appreciated around the globe now, it goes back uh, more than, a, well, about 100 years now in the United States and was a kind of virtuoso art form, uh, which was largely institutionally segregated out of colleges and universities and concert halls uh, for many years. But it took jazz almost 50 years to find its way into music schools in the United States. It wasn't until the mid-20th century that it began to infiltrate into our traditional music curricula. Uh, and so now here we are, uh, just to leap forward another 50 or 60 years, Kendrick Lamar, a hip-hop artist, just won a Pulitzer Prize in music composition. And the question is, how long will it take before we recognize hip-hop inside the academy, inside universities, as a durable part of our ongoing culture? Uh, so we have to constantly balance our uh, institutional uh, conservationism, which is very, very important, uh, with a kind of intentional or mindful progressivism, uh, especially in art schools, where the world's changing very quickly. And where I think uh, I'm anything of an entrepreneur, it's in trying to get that balance or mixture right so that we uh, serve our students uh, in the best possible way for the futures that they'll be living. That's kind of complicated, uh, but uh, it, it gives you some idea of how tricky it is to uh, provide anything like leadership um, in a very complicated uh, university that's trying to strike that balance. What challenges have you faced as dean? Because um, it's, it's in, in you telling your story, it sounds 
very similar to an entrepreneurial story and, and, and some of the things that you're trying to change and mindsets and, and bring new ideas and create. Uh, you, you see a problem that ha existed back in 1989, you said, and then you're in there making the shifts to, to make this happen. So what are some of the challenges that you faced that you had to overcome? How long does this program go? <laughs> <laughs> the abbreviated challenges. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I could start with the routine things, uh, especially in a public university where uh, always faced with um, financial uh, austerity. Uh, and, and in many ways, the traditional established methods of funding public higher education, especially at a fairly elite level, which is where the University of Texas tries to position itself, mm -hmm. uh, are becoming uh, exhausted. Uh, tuition uh, doesn't generate enough revenue. Uh, legislative appropriations are not keeping pace with the cost of higher education. We raise a lot of money from donors, and there are other assets and endowments. but. Uh, the demands on higher education have grown uh, so huge, uh, and and the race for success, both among universities but also among their students and graduates, is so ferocious uh, that those traditional forms of funding are not keeping pace with the ambitions of universities or the demands on universities. Uh, so. We as a college are looking at alternative methods of uh, generating revenue that would underwrite our educational and research mission. And more and more we're looking at uh, what the employers, what the corporations, what industry could and should be investing in what we're doing if we're really delivering what they and our students uh, most want from us. So we're actually creating, for our college, unprecedented partnerships with a wide array of companies uh, that are helping us to underwrite the educational uh, innovations that we're bringing. So trying, we're actually trying to invent a kind of new business premise mm -hmm. for the innovative programs that we're trying to build inside the university. The, there are also the challenges of working with uh, a wide array of super talented faculty uh, and scholars and artists and uh, getting everyone comfortable with this idea of uh, pr preserving our, our role as the, uh, in the traditional disciplines and arts while also making room for what's uh, new in the arts. And that's always a complicated organizational uh, challenge uh, is maintaining enough of a consensus to, to keep uh, the balance and to move forward, uh, but not being so uh, uh, committed to absolute unanimity. With mm -hmm. if, if, if we can only do as an organization what we unanimously agreed we should do, then we'll do nothing. Uh, and, and making sure you maintain the right balance between pushing uh, uh, toward for progress um, as much as you can uh, without losing too much of the community in that process is a, a, a daily challenge, yeah. a, an absolutely daily challenge. Mm -hmm. um, 
And there, uh, deans have very complicated roles. Uh, we, we do a lot of fundraising. Um, our supporters, our patrons are extremely generous. We're raising 10 to $15 million a year for the College of Fine Arts. Um, and uh, that, that's, in fact, in a few minutes I'll be on the road to Houston uh, to meet with donors. Um, that's an important part of the dean's job every day. R recruiting top faculty talent and retaining it. Uh, uh, I'll be making three phone calls on my way to Houston, uh, both recruiting top faculty and talking to a really very talented faculty here at the college right now about why they should stay and not go to that other great school that's uh, offering them uh, something attractive. So th there are endless ch challenges. So it's really, really similar to a startup. I mean, raising funds, hiring employees, and keeping employees and great talent, and then also making sure that there's leadership there to, to push forward. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is. You would know more about that than I do. I, I am absolutely a creature of the university. I, I spent uh, one year of my entire adult life outside the university, and that so terrified me that uh, I ran right back to the university and have never left <laughs> after, after I graduated from college. And this was in the late 70s and literally did what uh, so many young people did back then, which was just to put a backpack on my back with, with 20 bucks in my pocket and go hitchhiking around the country. When the 20 bucks ran out, I, I uh, finally slouched back home to Washington, D.C. and got a job working for a congressman on Capitol Hill. I did that for about three months and thought, this is the, the most awful thing. I'm going back to the ivory tower, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I now call the real world, uh, and have had a wonderful career here ever since. But I have to say, not because uh, I was attracted to the security of it, because I thought it was a place where creativity and innovation could and, and would be rewarded. Yeah. What do you do in your free time? I don't have a lot of free time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I don't do a lot. Uh, I'm a runner. I run marathons, um, w which consumes many of my mornings. Just got back from the Boston Marathon, which was the most miserable experience of my life. Uh, but Why was it miserable for you? It was the worst weather the Boston Marathon has seen in 40 years. Oh, wow. okay. uh, 37 degrees, driving rain. It was 26.2 uh, miles is usually unpleasant for at least six miles, no matter when you do it. But uh, when you're hypothermic and uh, Sure, you're, you're, you're either going to get to the finish line or die. It's, <laughs> it's even more unpleasant. Don't ask me why I do that for fun. Yeah, <laughs> for free time, for, for fun, yeah. for sure. What advice would you give to anybody wanting to follow in your footsteps? Uh, academic leadership um, is striking a balance between... Uh, this conservationism that I talked about and progressivism. Uh, hi higher education, it, just like our healthcare system, mm -hmm. is under enormous pressure to innovate and uh, change, to adapt to the current needs of the larger society. Uh, but they're very traditional organizations. That, um, that they, for good reason, prize uh, tradition. Um, so, uh, 
not just being a master of your discipline uh, and a teacher uh, of that discipline, but also trying, learning how to work inside a complex organization with strong traditions and strong values to create uh, the opening, the possibility for change. That's a talent that will be hugely rewarded in American higher education. It's part of the reason why uh, higher education in the United States is uh, looked up to and modeled all over the world. Uh, the American, uh, well, we, we could say our formal educational system maybe not the best in the world uh, at the K-12 level. Uh, we, we've neglected that to such an extent that we're nothing like a leader uh, internationally in the education of children. But American higher education has long been regarded as uh, one of the great models emulated all over the world. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. But one reason is uh, that uh, American higher education is so competitive. Uh, there's so much innovation going on. It's so restless. And it's so inclusive. I don't think there's another country in the world that provides as broad an opportunity uh, for higher educational participation as the United States. I may be wrong about that, but uh, uh, if, if I am wrong, it's because the United States has set the model for other countries that they've uh, followed and, and done uh, better at. Uh, it's, it's a, I heard someone describe it the other day as the uh, wild west of higher education. And like the United States, this very competitive marketplace that higher education uh, operates in creates the very best that you uh, would hope for. So um, th th you, you started out by saying uh, that you know so many who, who just look for careers that provide security and safety and stability uh, so that they can put their kids through school and college and pay off a mortgage. And, uh, but in higher education, innovators and entrepreneurs are rewarded uh, because it is such a restless, competitive environment. So I, I would say to those who have ambitions to uh, academic leadership in universities, uh, think like an entrepreneur. I love it. I wanna, we're going to close on that. Okay. Thank you so much. It's okay. been a yeah, really it's a, been pleasure, a pleasure uh, learning more about this. It's, it's very enlightening, and, and I know our viewers and listeners are going to enjoy it. Great. Thanks Thank so much. You. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Dempster, for taking the time to speak with me. Think like an entrepreneur and see how you can take your skill, craft, or passion to the next level. And I think we're going to see a lot of great thinkers coming out of UT's College of Fine Arts in the coming years. The Masters and Founders team includes me, Dan Dillard, and producer Mariah Gossett. And special thanks to the whole team at Founding Austin. If you are enjoying the show, make sure you're a member of our Facebook group, Masters and Founders, for even more content. And don't forget to rate and review. It does help, I promise. Thanks for listening.